friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live. Finally. <laughs> we had to have a few We had yawns. a contagious yawn chain going. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Sunday, everyone. <laughs> Well, happy Tuesday, but it's Sunday for us, so. I don't even know what day it is anymore. I feel that. I felt that the other day. I was, I had a little friend shindig to go to on Friday, and so I was messaging my friend on Thursday, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll bring it to you on Friday, or tomorrow, whatever day it is. I don't know. You're like, you know what I mean. Yeah, all over the map, but here we are. (laughs) We sure are. Um... I had my work Christmas party last night. How was it? This is just how, this is the lead into what I wanted to show you when we were recording. So I think it's funny. Um, and there was like a lot of like funny gifts and like board games and just like smaller things so that everyone could get a prize. Sure. That's nice. So of course it's trivia. So <laughs> us as a power couple at trivia, we're just like. Boom, boom, boom. At one point, the manager was like, okay, stop answering. I was like, Stop answering. You can't win all the prizes, We had like seven gifts. Yeah. So, the one thing that I did get that I'm really fond of that I wanted to show you, but I need to just put it on something first because it'll be more of an effect. I got to do it kind of gently so you don't... Oh, 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 I already turned it on. Oh, boy. But that's okay. It's bright. What is that? Okay. So... You've seen Finding Nemo, right? Of course. Get this in your head. Just keep I'm swimming is the motto of my life. So, this. Oh my god. But look at, he A, has a little bum. Stop. B, he holds your phone. And second, when you give him a little taparoo, he's a lamp if that you just charge and you can use anywhere. The seagull that I can says, take him mine, camping. mine. Mine. And it is a light and it holds your phone and it's a whole thing. But it's also just like so fucking adorable. Look at his face. You are going to have to post a photo of that on Instagram so that everybody else can see it in its full glory. Where do people come up with this stuff? Like it's phenomenal, but like who who invented this? But like I think I think there was also a bunny that somebody won. So now I want to know what it does. I think they're just from Walmart. So I just need to go in and look at them. Now you want the whole collection. Well... Maybe everyone will be getting one. Everyone. Katie just hands these out as gifts. Stocking stuffers. It's amazing. I love it. Now um, I and on the box it says, hello, my name is Edgar. Oh, Edgar. So he comes named and everything with a personality it. and a butthole. That's, that is It's something. weird. I'm just glad that, and I think this is why they put the little X there is because the USB port is like two inches lower. Ah. So I think they were just wanting to clarify, like, you are not plugging into his bum. Oh, my God. So inappropriate. Well, I just think people would laugh at that, and it would be like, kids would make fun of it, and it might just stop people from buying it, because it might look weird. I was going to say, that is not kid-friendly. No, not at all. The literal butt plug. Anyways, that is sort the of... jokes write themselves about this one, guys, when you see the picture. Sort of wholesome, sort of not. I'll take it. It's adorable. It's Edgar. 
I'm, he is who he is. We're going to a Christmas party next like, week, and we haven't really gone to a Christmas party together yet because it always just happens that we can't go, so it should be fun. Yeah, this one wasn't, like, anything major or over the top, but it was just cute and fun, and it was fun to have a night out, yeah. and I'll leave him on. Um, he, he also has a timer. Um... <laughs> Last night, we sent our moms on a date. Oh, that's nice. So, for those of you who know, I am engaged, but our mothers have never met. Okay, yep, same. Because, again, different provinces, travel is expensive within Canada. It's really just a product of convenience when you're already doing something. But his mom decided to fly out and visit us for Christmas, which was so sweet. So, we did it early, so it was, like, much more convenient, affordable, flexible, whatever. And... Because my Christmas party fell on the same weekend that she was visiting, we ended up just sending our moms essentially on a date. That's cute. Yeah. So we like all met up. I went to the party, helped set up with the managers. And then Simon came and met me. And then we like hung out, had dinner, went to the party. (laughs) Then we met our moms at like this like kind of skeezy bar that was downstairs from my Christmas party. Mm -hmm. And... There was a live band, though, and they were really good. Oh, that's cool. But it was just funny, like, seeing our moms come drunk into the bar <laughs> after they went on a date. Yeah, that is not what what would happen if I sent my mom and Brandon's mom on a date. They would not show up drunk. Well, his mom might, but mine wouldn't. Uh, no, same no. boat, though. I don't think our parents will meet until the wedding. Yeah, or at least, like, festivities start for it. Yep. I don't think that there's any plans for, like, well, my parents aren't going there anytime soon, and I don't think his are coming here probably until we get married. So it'll be a two-in-one. Yeah. Bogo. <laughs> Whatever. It's all good. Like you said. Yeah, and I mean, in this day and age with video chat and options and Skypes and stuff, it's like, if you really want to get a conversation or a face-to-face, it's totally doable now. Yeah. So I think the f- in-person visits aren't as stressed anymore. No. Nope. But with that being said, we are heading across the country today to Quebec. Ooh. So we are we are taking a journey I that. ourselves. I just want to be dramatic. Yeah, you already knew that, but <laughs> we are going to take a journey over to Point Saint Charles, Quebec, also known as the Point, which I understand is just like kind of a neighborhood within Montreal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and this is actually a cold case that was solved this year. So I decided that that would be kind of a cool thing to cover. Um, This case was unsolved for like 40 years and was just solved in May of this year with genetic genealogy. Um, And I always love a genetic genealogy case. I think they're really cool. I think that the fact that our technology has come that far that we're solving 40-year-old cold cases is wild so crazy yeah i don't know that we have anything else really to get into before that uh well when you said 40 years ago again i thought like 1960 no but no 1975 (laughs) like we're still in i'm still stuck in that age where like we were had the 90s nope and that's where we were (laughs) no no uh i know okay So, in 1975, Sharon Kim Pryor was 16 years old. 
She was five foot three and weighed 105 pounds with blonde hair and blue eyes. Sharon was known as a very bright teenager. She was very kind, very responsible and creative. She just seemed like a really, really all around good kid. Um, opposite of me at the age of 16. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) Sharon was heavily involved in the Boys and Girls Club, and she really enjoyed playing floor hockey there. She played other sports with the Boys and Girls Club, but floor hockey specifically she was super, super into. Um, And she had been active in the club since she was six years old. Oh, wow. Sharon was the oldest of five children in her family. She had two younger twin sisters named Maureen and Doreen, uh, which I was telling Katie about beforehand because you don't hear about as many twins anymore with rhyming names, I feel like, or really similar names, but I feel like it was a trend back then. Yeah, I feel like people are a little bit more like, wanting to give twins their individuality whereas before I think twins were seen as like a unit and I'm not saying they're either because I think they're both yeah but I think the mindset around naming has changed a lot (laughs) yeah so I thought that was cute though Maureen and Doreen um they were 14 years old at the time they also had an 11 year old brother named Jojo and a four-year-old foster brother named Steven Jojo super cute and also Steven just sounds adorable Steven! <laughs> I think any, and I have I know other podcasts have talked about this, we probably mentioned it, but picturing anything that we picture as like a, maybe like a name we don't hear as often, so like a quote-unquote older name. Yeah, yeah. Like hearing it as like someone on a little kid just seems funny. It's so cute. It is, yeah. and it's so, so charming just when they dress like little adults yeah. too. <laughs> Uh, Sharon's sisters Maureen and Doreen said that Sharon had dreams of becoming a veterinarian and she was focused on science and biology in high school to make these dreams come true. Yeah, she was a really smart kid, really focused on her goals and her extracurriculars and yeah. I took a hard left away from the sciences. Oh, same. Yeah, I tried, but (laughs) it turns out I I took earth science. I wasn't. I I did take biology and stuff, and I think my mom tried to get me to take chemistry, but I just wasn't that disciplined when it came to, like, studying and stuff in high school, and so that just didn't pan out for me. I think I kind of compromised in taking higher math Mm -hmm. and less science because I just... Numbers are more black and white. I'm more comfortable with them. I think I can always figure that out if I have to. Yeah. But Sharon was super smart. She was taking the sciences. She wanted to become a veterinarian. So she was making her way there. Doreen said that Sharon was beautiful and had a heart of gold. Uh, The children lived with their mother, Yvonne, and their grandmother at 445 Congregation Street in Point St. Charles, which is a neighborhood of Montreal, like I mentioned, known to the locals as The Point. It was March 29, 1975, when 16-year-old Sharon Pryor left her home at around 7 p.m. to meet up with friends at a local pizzeria, and she never returned. March 29th, 1975 was Easter weekend for Sharon and her family and anybody else who celebrates Easter. I don't know why I wrote it like that. Um, And it started out like any other. Sharon got up in the morning. If you choose to observe it. Well, yeah. true, I guess. 
Sharon got up in the morning. She did her morning chores and ate breakfast with her siblings. After that, she decided to boil some eggs so that she could decorate them for Easter while her mother went out shopping for some last minute things that they needed for dinner. Cute. So cute. And it made me want to boil eggs and decorate them and paint them at Easter this year because I never do that anymore. And it's a fun activity. We should do that. We should. We really should. When Sharon's mother returned home at around 3 p.m., she and her mother spent some time together painting the eggs and they were just kind of like discussing their Easter plans for the weekend. Yes. Why do we only decorate eggs for Easter, do you think? Because now that I'm thinking about it, I could decorate some super cute, like, Christmas eggs, Halloween eggs. Well, I imagine it's because eggs are, like, a theme of Easter. You you know, know, the chocolate eggs and things like that. It's kind of like, like, why don't we decorate year-round pumpkins? I guess so. (laughs) You can decorate eggs. I don't know why. It just didn't occur to me to think of it for other holidays. Because I do actually have pumpkins as long as they'll last. Yeah. Well, I still have a pumpkin. I think that you can decorate whatever you want, whenever you want, with hmm. whatever you'd like. There's no rules. Hmm. Okay. Thanks. You're so welcome. <laughs> At around 3.45 p.m., Sharon told her mom, Yvonne, that she was going to the Boys and Girls Club to pick up her Leo's Boys jacket, it's called. So it was like a jacket that you got for selling raffle tickets from the club. Um, and so she had like earned enough to go and pick up a jacket and she decided to take her four-year-old foster brother Stephen with her to the club uh, to pick up a jacket unfortunately though when they got there the club didn't have her size so they gave her a receipt and told her that she could pick up a jacket in her size when they arrived Um, and this just shows how caring of a sister she was she also inquired about getting Stephen one of the same jackets because he didn't have a spring jacket yet and so she wanted to get him one to match her which is so wholesome and adorable also do you remember just like selling raffle tickets or chocolate bars or something mm-hmm. like to do something and then there being prizes uh, if you were like top seller and stuff yes i wanted or, like cr- those christmas catalogs of chocolates mine was always for figure skating because we always sold tickets yeah. for like our ice shows and stuff we did an ice show every year um and I remember one year I sold enough to get a prize. I don't remember if it was for a second or third, but it was one of, like, an old-school MP3 player that held, like, 12 songs. Yeah. That's amazing at the time, though. You were probably, like, big swinging. super jazzed. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but yeah so she, she she earned a jacket, but they, uh, they didn't have it, so she took the receipt, and her and uh, Stephen headed back to the house to continue preparing for Easter dinner that night. When they got back to the house, Sharon continued to paint the remainder of her eggs she had boiled, and she also read a book to Stephen about the Easter bunny because he was excited about the upcoming holiday and about hunting for Easter eggs. And remember, he's four, so he's just super jazzed. That evening, the family sat down for dinner. Um, it was Sharon, her, her mother Yvonne, her grandmother that lived with them, Stephen, the twins, her brother Jojo and a family friend named Doug. Um, this was a friend of their mom's it's a full house. Yeah, so they sat down and had their Easter dinner. After dinner, Sharon's friend who lived just down the street stopped by the house. So this was a friend of Sharon's. They had been friends since they were five years old, but they went to different high schools and they had different friend circles. Um, okay. 
So she would just stop by to hang out. Sharon told her that she was going to be going to a local pizzeria that night called Mary, uh, Marina's. Sorry. Um, this was a pizzeria located on the corner of Wellington and Ash Avenue. And it was known as like a regular hangout for teenagers. A lot of places didn't allow teenagers and I mean, still don't to, to just loiter. like <laughs> kind of sit around and loiter. Exactly. But this place specifically was super happy to have the teenager there. To them, kind of. They were, they just opened their doors to them and were happy yeah. to have them there and they didn't kick them out. And so it was known as somewhere where people would just like go. Um, this was about five blocks from Sharon's house, and she told her friend she was going to meet some of her friends there to hang out for the evening. Now, since they had different friend groups because they went to different high schools, this friend of hers didn't really want to go hang out at the pizzeria, but said that, like, they would hang out and get ready together, and then she would walk her there on her way home kind of thing. Okay. The two girls spent some time in Sharon's bedrooms, trying on different outfits. Sharon couldn't decide what to wear. This is, like, very classic. Some things never change. I was going to say, just some things never change, especially with teenage girls, I feel like. I mean, I still can never figure out what to wear, and I'm 32. Uh, but I had four different outfits laid out last night before this Christmas party, and I was just like, uh, mm, uh. It just, it is what it is. Yeah, you try them on, you try them on with different shoes and accessories, and then you land on one. So Sharon finally decided on one of of her outfits, which was actually one of her mother's skirts. Um, Mm -hmm. She then threw on a brown suede jacket over top, but as they went outside, she, like, realized it was raining and was a bit worried about getting her jacket wet as it could get ruined, but, like, decided to go out in it anyways. (laughs) Uh, The girls then said their goodbyes, and they began their walk to the pizzeria. They left the house at around 7, 10 p.m. that evening, and Sharon's friend offered to walk her all the way to the pizzeria prior to parting ways, but Sharon told her that she was fine to walk the rest of the way on her own. It wasn't very far. She had done it many times before, um, and so the girls parted ways. Yeah, I don't think that's odd. I think we all, I mean, even at our ages, in the 90s, we would walk home all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Unfortunately, however, this was the last time Sharon's friend saw or spoke to her as she never made it to the pizzeria. Her friends who were waiting for her at the pizzeria, it's hard to know whether they were actually waiting for her or if Sharon had just kind of like said that she'd meet them there. Like, because it was such a popular place for teenagers to just like come and hang out. I don't know if it was actually like a plan or just like that they were going there or just like see you there later kind of thing. Is it like the Friends Coffee House where, like, you just, they'll all just show up there at some point, so just go there? Yeah, and I'm sure, like, it was talked about, but I, I couldn't see anywhere that it was, like, they had made these concrete plans and there would have been this huge alarm bell concern if she didn't show up, so. Yeah. Her friends there had just assumed that she had decided to go to the local hockey game with her boyfriend, John, instead, and so they weren't really worried when she never arrived. Okay. I guess if it's something she's done in the past or she had talked about it, so it seemed logical that she would do it, sure. Yeah. So it just kind of, I mean, again, they're teenagers too. I think it was just kind of like, oh, well, she probably did something else. Um, Her mother, Yvonne, said that Sharon would always return home by 11 p.m. when she went out. And the latest she ever stayed out was 1 a.m. And if she was expecting to be out this late, she would always call home to let her mom Mm. know. So when Sharon didn't come home as expected and she didn't call, 
this raised alarm bells for Yvonne and the rest of her family because it was just not like Sharon to stay out late without letting anyone know. She was very responsible. Okay. Hmm. The pizzeria was... We hear this so often, like... Mm -hmm. Never miss curfew. Always called if they were late. It's so sad. Yeah. And I think that that's, those are the cases where that's like noticed right away mm -hmm. that there's something wrong. Well, because... yeah, because there's such a routine and structure mm -hmm. and like respect there. Mm -hmm. And then it's just not there. It's like, hold on. It's like last week, how that guy was like, did Radic call you yet? Right. And it was like, he knew immediately because it was just like, wait that your phone hasn't rang at the same time as it always does. Yeah. They just learn. Yeah. We all do. Yeah, and this pizzeria was only like a five-minute walk from their house, and Yvonne knew she had done this walk many times with no problem, so it was just a immediately of concern. Yvonne... I'm sorry, how old is she at the time? 16. Yeah, like a five-minute walk for a 16-year-old, that's probably longer than her walk home from the bus yeah. or something like that. Like, that wouldn't seem concerning to most par parents, I, I think. Yeah, no, not at all. Especially not in 1975, in like a small neighborhood. Yeah, and doing such a routine thing, like mm -hmm. they went to a movie or going for coffee or going for pizza or this or that. Like, they're just normal hangout things. You don't think anything of it. Yeah, it's a place that she went all the time. It wasn't like yeah. she was going there for the first time kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yvonne also noted that Sharon's bus pass and money had been left in her room, um, which is obviously something she wouldn't leave if she was going to be gone for longer than just the night out kind of thing. Yeah. So a search party was conducted for Sharon, and for three days, her family and friends from Verdun High School, along with volunteers in the community and the local police, searched for her high and low. It was not until Tuesday evening on April 1st, 1975, so three days after she went missing, that Sharon Pryor's body was found in a field in Longwheel? I should probably... Okay, wait, how is it spelled? I should just, I'm, I'm just going to look it up. I'm genuinely curious, though, because can you just show me? Because I'm pretty sure that's the neighborhood that Simon was... Like, that I visited him in. L-O-N-G-U-E-U-I-L. Yeah, okay, it's Longueuil. Okay, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> that's so funny, though, because, like, like, the apartment I visited every time I went to see him and stayed at was in that city. Okay. Or town. That's cool. Just Longway? Longway. It's like goy at the end. Okay. Well, her body was found in a field there on the south shore okay. of Montreal. The okay. field was located at Chemin de Lac and Guimond Boulevard, and it had been used by a local beekeeper who lived nearby. Oh. The beekeeper kept his hives in this field and had become aware that something was wrong when he noticed the gate had been left open and it had always been padlocked shut. Mm. So he went over at around 9 p.m. to check on what was going on and discovered a body laying in the snow. I can only imagine that a farmer pulling up to their field or property that's, like, gated like that. It's got to just be, like, driving up to your house and seeing your front door open. Yes. Because you're just kind of a sitting duck walking into it looking, and that's got to still be terrifying. Yes. When Sharon was found, she was wearing her three-quarter length suede coat that she was so worried about getting ruined. 
her sweater, her shoes, and her socks. Her jeans and underwear had been removed, and police found them approximately six feet away from her body. Her jeans were found on the ground, and her underwear was found hanging in a tree nearby, sort of as if they had just been, like, thrown. Like, maybe thrown out of vehicle or thrown when she was dumped there? Yeah. Detective Sergeant Jacques Dutriche and Renaud Lacombe from the Longwy Police Department arrived on scene and noted they believed the killer had driven their vehicle out onto the field and tossed Sharon's body. They then theorized that the killer went back to the vehicle to get the jeans and underwear and had thrown them out into the field, which is why the heavier jeans had landed on the ground and the underwear had ended up in a tree branch. Look at us, like armchair detectives over here. (laughs) Well, in fairness, I knew what was coming. I know, I'm just tooting my own horn, but I'm being humble about it by saying us. I was going to say, you, not me. I already knew. It's me and Edgar over here. You and Edgar, yeah. Other evidence that was discovered near Sharon's body included tire marks, a size 8.5 shoe print, and a shirt that was believed to have been used to tie Sharon up. The shirt had a size 17 collar and had 34-inch sleeves. And from this, the police believed the owner of the shirt would have been a man approximately six feet tall. Okay. From the footprint at the crime scene, they believed whoever dumped Sharon's body had been approximately 200 pounds. They had also found a section of partially chewed tape caught in her hair, and it was believed that this tape had been used as a gag. Okay, yeah, I, okay. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. Yvonne. I thought at first you were going to mean like they ripped the tape, like that's what you meant by partially chewed. That's why I was like, wait, uh, then it clicked what you meant, Mm but, oh, that's sad. Yvonne was asked to identify Sharon's body, but said she couldn't do it. She didn't want to see her daughter like that. And so her brother, Sharon's uncle, was the one who went and positively identified the body as Sharon. Um, now I couldn't find any of this in my act in like my personal research, but I listened to Dark Poutine's podcast on this, and hmm. they were just kind of talking about how the family found out that Sharon was found, and it seems like they found out on the news that a body was found, and it was like a young girl. Like they connected and, the dots very quickly. Yeah, and it's like they weren't called first, which ugh. I hate that. I can't imagine something so heart-wrenching hitting media. Before and you. just you. in, like, probably a most vulnerable state because you're just puttering around your house and thinking, like, no news is good news. Mm-hmm. And you're expecting, like, the phone to ring or a knock at the door. You're not expecting to hear your newscaster that you really trust in your home to say these things and be the one to tell you that because I think that's heart-wrenching. Yeah. Yeah, so if you uh, want to listen to another version of this story or, like, another way it's told, Dark Poutine did a really good episode on it. They, it was before the case was solved, though, so it is told as, like, an unsolved case, which is totally fine. Um, I just, yeah, heads up. Thank you for your approval. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, you know, it's it was an older episode, so this new information yeah. hadn't been discovered yet, but they did do a really good job of kind of telling the story and going a little bit more into their actual, like, younger family life and things like that. So listen to Dark Poutine if you would like to hear that. An autopsy was performed on Sharon and determined she had been raped and strangled. She had also been brutally beaten. 
whoever did this to her was a monster, and we will find out who that is in a little bit. Her body was covered in bruises. She had two jaw fractures on both sides of her mouth. She also had a broken nose and a hole in one of her cheeks, which they determined was likely caused when one of her teeth had become loose during the struggle with her killer. Mm -hmm. She also had blood in her lungs, and it was believed that she had hemorrhaged blood from internal injuries sustained when whoever attacked her was kneeling on her chest. And she's tiny, right? She was like 5'1". Five, 5'3", five, and like 100 five, pounds, yeah. Yeah, she's small. She's very petite, yeah. so... And they are assuming this, this person so was like 6 feet top. tall, 200 pounds, like a big guy. So over the top. Yeah, so it's like someone who probably doesn't realize how strong they are against someone who's very small and petite and... Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was believed from the autopsy, this part is hard, that Sharon had likely been alive when she was dumped in the field and had been left clinging to a tree branch and died there. Wow. Awful. What a piece of shit. In 1975, the amount of DNA gathered at the scene was insufficient to be tested or used in court. However, it was kept over the years in the hopes that it might someday be used to find a match to the suspect as technology improved. Um, So they did have DNA. It just wasn't enough at the time with the technology that was available. Mm -hmm. The police received a total of 60 tips after Sharon's death and at least 38 people were questioned. Six of them were singled out as prime suspects, but they were released due to lack of information. The police were also concerned that Sharon's murder may have been related to the death of a couple of other local girls. Uh, Norma O'Brien had been murdered uh, in the general area the summer before. Norma was 12 years old and she had been found in a field near her home. She too had been sexually assaulted and her body was mutilated. Like Sharon, Norma had also been strangled. Poor girls. Yeah. About a year later, 14-year-old Debbie Fisher had begun a 10-minute bike ride from her uncle's to her family home. She went missing, and the police quickly started their investigation. She disappeared only 10 minutes away from where Norma had disappeared from the previous year. Debbie Fisher was found in an abandoned car in the woods, having been beaten over the head with a rock. Oh, God. Yeah. Like just some random car? Yes. Just an abandoned car in the woods. You know how sometimes you're like walking through the forest and you just see like an abandoned vehicle? like that. Yeah, with like flat tires and moss all over it yeah. and rust. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how callous. Yeah. So a year went by with nothing, no movement in the case. In 1976, the local newspaper published an article to commemorate one year since Sharon had been brutally murdered. The article wrote about the case, including details such as the tire tracks and the footprint that the police had discovered. The police were interviewed by reporters about their progress on the case and stated they were essentially no closer to finding a suspect than they had been the day Sharon was found. I mean, there hasn't been a ton of technology advances in a year or changes, so yeah, I get it. 
29 years went by, and in 2004, there was a potential break in the case. Um, all the... All the research that I found says there was a break in the case, but, like, it didn't amount to anything. So I say potential break because, like, no. So, like, nothing came to fruition no. or it did and it just didn't do anything? Uh, well, I guess you're about to tell me. I'll Never tell mind. you. Yeah. So authorities <laughs> had received a tip that resulted in both the Montreal and Longwy police beginning a search of a garage located behind an apartment building on Favard Street. During the search, they were said to be looking for DNA evidence, traces of blood, or anything else that could help them identify who might have killed Sharon. Um, This garage was only a few streets away from the prior family home, and police thought Sharon may have been held there from March 29th to April 1st, 1975. Oh, wow. Because remember, when she was found, they believed that she had been alive when she was yeah. dumped there, and it doesn't sound like they thought she had been there for very long. Like her time of death was that long ago, mm-hmm. so. So they thought possibly she had been held somewhere else before being dumped. A pro- I mean, it does kind of, like, sadly let heat die down, so some people think, like, oh, I'll do this in a couple of days or whatever, or right. I'll, we'll move out of this area or something, I don't know. Yeah. Approximately two dozen police officers were on scene scouring the garage for evidence. They searched for approximately 15 hours, searching small storage lockers that were there used for tenants of the apartment building. Um, So they confirmed that they were not actually interested in the personal belongings in these storage lockers, but they were actually searching like the structure itself. So the walls, the floors, anywhere in the garage that might have, like, held some DNA. Because it's been, like, almost 30 years at this point. So, obviously, there's been developments. Yeah, I guess. So you need something that's not, like, heavily trafficked. Yes. Well, they're looking for... They're looking for DNA that might still be in the floors and the walls and things like that. The police stated that they didn't have a suspect in mind during the investigation into the garage. Um, They didn't believe that the current residents of the building were any way involved in the girl's murder. They just received this tip and they needed to search the premises. So the building itself had actually been home to a family friend of the prior family and uh, like at the time of Sharon's murder, but her sister Doreen stated that the family never thought of that person as a suspect in Sharon's death. Okay, fair. Should that not, should I not feel that way? No, that's, that person was never found he is to clear. be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That, okay. I don't know who that yeah. person was, but it was. Like, a, th- a tip came through, somebody close to the family lived there, they needed to search it, but the family was like, we never ever thought that they were involved nah. at all, um, and it, it never came out with anything. So, during this search, the Longhui police were able to collect three DNA samples from the Fabard Street garage and sent them out to a lab for analysis. These DNA samples were also compared to the dozens of DNA samples taken from potential suspects in the case and ultimately came back negative, um, and nobody was arrested for Sharon's murder after this search of this garage. That's so crazy. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not, because it happens all the time, but it's just, like, it's always shocking to me, just, like, okay, no match after running, like, sample after sample after sample after sample. Mm-hmm. 
It's always just shocking to me. Yeah. Constable Mark David, who spoke on behalf of the Longaway police, said, quote, somebody had told us that maybe Sharon had been held in that garage before being transported to the field, but ultimately, unfortunately, sorry, we found no proof that day indicating that Sharon had been held there. Hmm. The prior family was still determined to keep fighting to find out what happened to Sharon. Um, her mother, Yvonne, literally never gave up and is the sole reason why this case ended up getting solved. She spent her entire life, literally, fighting for her daughter, continuing to apply pressure to police throughout the numerous years and ultimately decades that it went unsolved. We've heard about this so much lately about parents just committing their, like, entire rest of their lives mm-hmm. and like good on them but like the fact that they have the resources to do so is like incredible and that well it's ridiculous that they have to is yeah. my opinion of it like the fact that agreed the police department even says like without yvonne and the family fighting so hard like this case would have never been solved and it's like that shouldn't be a thing that's also another thing we see more is like Police are saying, like, with the help of the victim's family, we've solved da 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 And it's like, are you just saying that because the victim's family's done a lot of the grunt work and, like, brought the evidence to you? You've just made the arrest? Well, like, why do we have, why do they have to continuously call you and ask where the case is at and apply pressure on it for you to not forget about it? Like, I understand that police have a million yeah. other cases that they're working on, but not, no case should it's just get... just how overrun they are, maybe? pushed to the shelf and forgotten about unless the family fights for it. Like, that's ridiculous to me. Yeah. That's a broken system, in my this opinion. This could be a conversation for another day. <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. But I like this one. I'm just saying. You have to keep going. Yeah. In 2012, the case was revived again, and a $10,000 reward was offered by an anonymous donor in the hopes that it would bring forward a tip or clues that would finally catch the monster that killed Sharon. 30 years after her murder, a scholarship was named in Sharon's honor at the Point St. Charles Hall of Recognition event, which took place at the YMCA. The scholarship was created to aid residents in the Point to get into college, and it was a way for Sharon's loved ones and the neighborhood to keep her memory alive and honor her. That's really sweet. Yeah. 48 years after Sharon was murdered, there was finally a break in the case. So almost 50 years after she was killed. At a news conference this year. mm -hmm, At a news conference this year in May of 2023, the chief inspector of the major crimes division at the Longwee Police Service, Pierre Duquette, revealed that a scientific breakthrough using genetic genealogy led them to solving the 48-year-old cold case. Woo. So it was revealed that back in 2019, samples had been sent to a lab in West Virginia that later matched a man named Franklin Romine's family members um, using data from genetic genealogy or, like, genealogical websites. Okay. Police analyzed Y-chromosome DNA passed down almost unchanged from father to son to identify a family line, and they matched that sample to four brothers in West Virginia. Once, okay. once police matched the DNA to the Romine family, investigators met with Romine's brother to gather 
their soul DNA and determined it was a near match to the genetic material that was found at the crime scene. Whoa, okay. There's just like a big chain of interactions. Yeah, I mean, that's how genetic genealogy is like a long process. No, I know. I was just like trying to keep up with it all. It was a lot. (laughs) Documents filed by prosecuting attorney Mark A. Sorcia in West Virginia's Putnam County showed that two of Romine's brothers voluntarily gave DNA samples to police and one of them had told investigators his brother, uh, so Franklin Romine, had actually tried to rape his wife. So this guy is not a good dude. Whoa, okay. In May of 2023, the same month of the press conference, the body of Franklin Romine of West Virginia was exhumed for testing. Franklin Romine had actually died in 1982 at the age of 36, um, but he matched the description of the suspect. His car matched the tire tracks that had been found at the scene where Sharon's body was discovered. Um, and it was DNA evidence found on the shirt at the scene that had been used to like restrain Sharon that eventually confirmed him 100% as Sharon Pryor's killer. Wow. Franklin Romine's two sisters and two brothers opposed their brother's exhumation, saying that according to their religious beliefs, um, Basically, it was like a sacrilege to disturb a person's body. It was a big no-no. However, Judge Philip M. Stowers ruled on April 20th, 2023, that the exhumation could go ahead. Uh, Sarah Bourgeois is the director of the biology and DNA department at Quebec's National Forensic Science Laboratory and said that retrieving a full genetic profile from Franklin Romine's bones was a difficult task. She said, quote, was. Does that mean you did it properly, though? (laughs) I would be like reading into it. I think it was just difficult. Like they were happy that it worked here, but that it could might not have in other cases because they only had for sure bones to deal with. Yeah. She said happily here it worked. We were able to establish a genetic profile by comparing it to the unknown profile in Sharon Pryor's case. We remarked that it was identical, which confirmed that it was indeed Franklin Romine who left his DNA at the scene. She said that advances in DNA testing and growing databases provide stronger tools for law enforcement to solve cold cases. So after Franklin Romine was identified as the killer, police then started to look into connections between Romine and Sharon's murder and discovered that at the time he actually lived near the scene of her abduction and had knowledge of the place where her body was discovered. Hmm. Uh, Franklin Romine was born April 2nd, 1946, and was from West Virginia. He had a long criminal record and encounters with law enforcement in both Montreal and West Virginia, including at least one rape conviction, but he was never considered a suspect in the death of Sharon. There's so many reasons why I'm glad we've amped up border security to keep out people that have just, like, extensive criminal records like so we wouldn't have probably gotten this guy for example yeah so he had a pretty extensive criminal record from 1955 to 1974 it included breaking and entering grand larceny multiple prison breaks theft impaired driving hit and run rape like he had a long rap sheet we never would have let him in 
Yeah, and so according to what we know now, Romine committed a rape in West Virginia in 1974 and then fled to Canada. This is when he is believed to have abducted and murdered Sharon. He would have been 28 years old at the time. Um, shortly after Sharon's death, Franklin was arrested in Montreal for that West Virginia rape and extradited to the U.S. Hmm. But he was still never considered a suspect in her death and was not among the more than like 100 people that were investigated by the police since Sharon was killed. Like, how did he go huh. under the radar? I don't know. I don't know. But like you it said, make any sense to me. I think less border security, less knowledge and like working with U.S. law enforcement and things like that. Yeah. What year was this again? 75. Yeah. There's a complete lack of knowledge there for what we know now and how we should be handling these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, Franklin Romine also matched the description of a man who had been kidnapped, uh, sorry, who had attempted to kidnap another woman at Knife Point shortly before Sharon disappeared. So this took place along the same street that Sharon would have been walking to the pizzeria. And yeah, so it's likely that this was already his existing vantage point, kind of like where he might sit to. Yeah. Have scoped people out or just be watching from? Yeah. Okay. Because Franklin Romine has died, the police say that the confirmation of his identity closes this cold case and will not lead to any charges in the Canadian courts. So the case is considered closed, but of course it's not going to go any further. Sharon's mother, Yvonne, is still alive and is now 85 years old. She spent her entire life fighting to find Sharon's killer and never gave up. The Longway Police Agency said that the prior family's pursuit of justice was a key factor in them finding her killer. After Sharon's killer had been discovered, her sister Maureen was quoted saying, You may never have come back to our house on Congregation Street that weekend, but you have never left our hearts and you never will. We love you, Sharon. May you now truly rest in peace. Oh, my God. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's all I have. It's a bit of a shorter one today. Um, but I thought that was an important case to tell and just shows that saving mm-hmm. DNA and saving evidence, even if it can't be used now, can always lead to a positive outcome. Even if it takes 50 years, this family now oh, has the answers. State. Yeah, the Golden State Killer. And we see so many more of them now, even in Canada. So, Yeah, and even on a much shorter time frame, just because like, it could be someone who's doing it like in real time, and it's their sibling or cousin or someone that we can connect to. So definitely, if you're open to it, share your DNA, share your raw data. Um, yeah. Yeah, if you don't feel comfortable with that, we also respect that. You do you. (laughs) Absolutely. But that's it. That's all I got for today. So we'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you're listening. Hit the follow, subscribe button. And as it subscribe, I think it's follow. I I think that, okay, I, something dorky to admit. I think in my head all the time what order we should be saying those in and what they are. And every time I question, subscribe. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think it's like, share, follow, review. 
Yeah, but I think it's like subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Like you're subscribing to the show so that you get notifications just and stuff. Just love us. Just say, just do all the things. Um, yeah, leave a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening. And we will talk to you next Much week. Much appreciated. That's it. Okay, well, Edgar and I are going to go uh, chill in the living room. <laughs> all right, enjoy your weekend. Bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me.